possibly be aware this side of heaven. Every one of us needs a depth and intimacy of relationship with You. Where we are centering our minds and our thoughts on Your Son, Jesus Christ. On His work for us. On His provision for us. So that we would be men and women recreated after Your image, filled with the Holy Spirit, living out of the truth of Your provision for us in Christ, living out of the truth of Your promise for us in the future, living out of the truth in the countless, from the countless ways that You have provided for us along the way so that we would be men and women of faith and trust, so that we would lean into the places You want to take us, that we would grab hold of those areas of our lives where we know that you want to make us increasingly after your image. Father, give us give us trust and faith today so that the fears that so easily cripple us, that so easily hinder us from growing into godliness, growing into Christ-likeness, becoming more like You, that so easily hinder us from mission and and Your calling for us and the fruitfulness for the sake of the Gospel to which You've called us. And ultimately, Lord, the fears that hinder us and keep us from, from the joy You have for us today. We ask, Lord, that You'd speak to us through Your Word. We submit ourselves to it. We submit ourselves to the authority of Your Son, Jesus Christ, and the power of the Spirit in us. We give ourselves to You today, Lord, so that You would remake us. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. The year was about 1900. A couple years before, a year or so after... 1898 to 1901, three or four years there in China, there was a nationalistic uprising. Maybe you've heard this term in high school or some history class. It was called the Boxer Rebellion. About 1900, the Boxer Rebellion in China was a nationalistic uprising where this group of militant uh, martial arts warriors, I mean, that's what they were, frankly. Uh, the, the, the Chinese uh, was literally translated... Uh, militia united in righteousness. The Western journalists called them the boxers. They targeted within China all Western influence and there was this nationalistic uh, uprising to root out all of the imperialism, all of the influence of outsiders, especially the Western influence and especially a subcategory of Western influence, especially Christians. So in the Boxer Rebellion... There were tens of thousands of Christians from China who lost their lives. Quite a few journalists and and, and Westerners. But there's this specific story, a pretty well-documented story, that tells of a time when the boxers captured a missionary school. It was full of children and a few teachers. About a hundred of them, mostly children, a few teachers. And they, they, they went around this compound and they blocked it all off except for one way out, this one gate where they could leave. And what they did is they stood in front of that gate and they placed a cross on the ground. And they said, if you 
are willing, one at a time, to come out and to trample this cross underfoot, we will let you go. The instructions were one at a time from the inside. These children and these teachers could come out. And if they trampled on the cross, they would be set free. But if they bowed to it, if they paid respect to it, if they gave honor to the cross, they would be killed. Those were the options. No others. Trample on the cross and live. Bow down to the cross and die. We'll come back to this later. We'll finish it up later. But I want to ask you this question. What would you do if that was you? If that were you in that context, what would you do if, if you came up against your greatest fears in life? That might not be it, but it probably is, is up there for most of us. What if you were in a situation like that where you were faced with some of your greatest fears? What would you do? For lots of us, the sad truth is that there are fears in our lives, some of which we don't even name, many of which we're not even aware of, that cripple us, that keep us stuck, that hinder us from forward movement, that keep us from progress for the sake of the kingdom, that keep us from becoming who God made us to be. Fear, friends, fear cripples. Fear cripples. And that's why, one of the, that's why this is one of the most important things for us to talk about in these six weeks of five topics, fear. Fear is something that's a little box compared to the other ones. The other, these other ones and, and depression there are larger in size. Fear is not very big, which is to say we don't even always name it. We're not sure what it is. It seems small, but the effects of fear for us, friends, can be absolutely crippling. I'm not being... Hyperbolic, I'm not exaggerating. They can be crippling for us in our walk with God. The sad truth is that uh, many of us are casualties to a pattern of thinking. Casualties to a pattern of thinking called fear. And that's how it cripples us. That's how it keeps us stuck. This pattern of thinking that is rooted in the lie, frankly... (laughs) That you have reason to fear. Oh, we'll get there eventually. Don't worry. We're going to get there. But, but, but the basic gist of it is this. It is captive, being held captive to a way of thinking, a pattern of thought that is rooted in the lie that as a believer in Christ, you still have reason to fear. We'll get there in a little bit. But I want to back up. Remember from last week, we talked about, if you were with us, we talked about the idea that being stuck is not where you're supposed to be. <laughs> That's why this title, this series is titled Unstuck. We need some fresh traction for these common struggles in our life. Stuck is not what God intends for us. And we're not just talking about being uh, unstuck someday in the future, not like unstuck in heaven. We're talking about becoming unstuck today so the forward progress, so that movement, so that God's work in your life can continue to happen today, now, in the meantime, not like someday. Some, some people, some Christians have this way of thinking about life like, well, whatever going to happen now, whatever, who cares? Someday, my hope's there. Of course it's there. But that hope, if it's real, if it's rooted in the power of the resurrection of Christ, 
that we'll talk about today, then it is something that affects us today. We live out of that truth today, as well as the provision of God for us in the past. Unstuck is not what we're called to be. We know that's the case because God came for that mission, for that purpose in our lives, not just to save us someday, but so that you can grow in godliness and you can be fruitful for the kingdom. And that in so doing, you would experience joy today that you cannot experience if you're stuck. So talking about getting unstuck is appropriate for the beginning of a new year when we think about these kinds of things in our walk. The truth is that we know intuitively that stuck is not where we're supposed to be. So we talked last week about John 10.10. We're going to put this on the screen for you. The reason God came in the person of Jesus, God's mission, is so that we could be unstuck. Let's read this together, John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus talking to his first followers. He says, I've come, contrary to the evil one who wants you to live in fear. I come so that you may have life and have it abundantly. And he's not just talking about heaven. (laughs) He's talking about today, right now in your life. I have come for this purpose that you may have life and have it to the full. Have it to the full. So how's that happen, Jesus? Sounds good. I like it. Help me get there. Hmm. This is how. God's method. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. We have to destroy strongholds with Christ's captive thinking. Let's read this together. This is God's method. We're going to keep coming back here in this series. Let's read it together now. 2 Corinthians 10. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So how do I get fresh traction? I destroy strongholds. We talked about this last week. And how do we do that? Christ's captive thinking. You may want to write that down. We're going to come back to it time and again, time and again. We destroy strongholds with Christ's captive thinking. And fear is the lie about how the world works that the evil one wants you to live from, live out of, think about, have as a pattern of thinking in your life. That's the fear out of which the evil one wants you to live. And that's the stronghold that keeps us stuck. Christ-captive thinking where we understand who God is and what He's done for us. And that changes everything. That's, in our minds, what destroys patterns of lies and strongholds like fear. So what we're going to do, we're going to talk about what fear is a little bit and get into how it applies to us. We'll get into the Word in just a little bit here. What we're going to do during the series is kind of functionally... We're going to lay on this couch. This is our psychiatrist couch here. We're going to lay on this couch and let the Word of God be our counselor. We're going to let the Word of God be our counselor. And I'm not just saying that as a metaphor for today, the sermon. I'm saying it as an analogy and metaphor for your whole life. If, if this Word is not your counselor with the Holy Spirit directing the Word in you, then, then you're going to just sit on this couch week after week after week after week and be captive to fear. So let's get this definition of fear for us out there so we're all on the same page. You're going to want to write this down because we're going to come back to it a little bit later. Fear is an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous, 
likely to cause pain or a threat. Fear is an unpleasant emotion. (laughs) Unpleasant emotion. That's stating it lightly. Caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous, likely to cause pain or a threat. And we're going to come back to this because there's something central to this definition that applies to us. Now, here's the gist. (laughs) We'll we'll get here eventually, but I want to tell you up front. The basic gist is this. Fear is not from God. If you're afraid of something in an ongoing way that hinders your growth, that hinders your progress for the sake of the gospel, that hinders you in becoming who God made you to be, that's a fear that's not from God. Now, let me, let me nuance that just, just a bit. Let me clarify some things. <laughs> We're not talking today about uh, silly fears, uh, rational fears. Uh, we're not talking about childhood fears, things that go bump in the night. This isn't uh, small momentary uh, childhood fears like fears of the dark, fear of heights, fear of spiders, snakes, stovetops, etc. Half of you are like, no, really, I'm scared of those. So, yes, I just openly said uh, we have no reason to be. But I understand that some of those things are kind of rational fears. Um, Kidding aside, some of these fears can be from God in in this sense. When your body reacts, when your body reacts and you can't stop it because it's just biology taking over, there are autonomic things that your body does as a response to something that is not helpful and that can hurt, that can be a good thing. Get away. We're not, we're not saying here, don't go away from here saying, Scott told me just to go home and turn on the stove and put my hand on it. And I don't just mean that literally. I mean, I mean figuratively. I'm not, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying we want you to all go through a dangerous, hurtful, painful life. We'll continue to clarify that along the way. You should be fearful of a hot stove. Okay? And did I mention snakes? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I just want to make sure I mention the snakes because you should run from them because they're icky and they're scary. And God cursed them in Genesis 3. And one of our elders who's sitting in the back, nameless, is harboring a cursed fugitive in his home. So pray for the Hamiltons. So we've established snacks, snakes, rational fear, snacks. Apparently I'm hungry. No, we're we're talking today about a specific kind of fear, and and this is a large category of things. Uh, We're talking about fears that keep us from growth and godliness, fears that become fears that become hindrances to becoming who God made us to be, fears that keep us from doing what God has called us to do, fears that keep us from growing in faith and strength and courage to go to those places where we know God has called us to where we may not want to. Or we may think, I I don't have the resources to. It's going to hurt. Those fears. Those fears. And these are the kinds of things that we talked about in this poll here. Uh, We blew up Facebook yesterday. We got uh, about 100 responses uh, from folks on this poll. And so let's put this poll up for us here. We're going to tell you what your real fears are here from uh, today here. Fears of failure, number one, 36%. Nice pie chart, people. Well done, A.V. 
first service didn't get the cool pie chart. <laughs> Number one fear here is failure, 36%. Number two is rejection, 33%. Those two, every single time we've done this, uh, first service for here, the hundred responses yesterday, number one and two, by far the, the, the largest. Failure and rejection. The next one is loneliness. Same thing, number three every time. Number three every time. Fears of pain, 10%. Intimacy, 5%. Insecurity, 3%. These are, these are things that hinder us. These are things that are worthy of talking about as hindrances to becoming who God made us to be. Which is to say, if we do not have a mindset on Christ, if we do not have Christ-captive thinking as the center of where we operate in our life, then you will, perhaps unwittingly, without naming it, without even knowing it sometimes, you will live out of a place of fear. You will live out of a place of fear. Here's why. Let's put the definition up again. Notice something in the definition that we talked about earlier that is key to what we're talking about today. Fear is an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous, likely to cause pain or a threat. There's one word in here. There's one word in here that's super important for us to notice, and that word is belief. Every single one of us sits here going, fear is a real thing that's coming at me that I don't like. Fear is a belief. We're going to talk about how Scripture comes alongside and says fear unqualified does not come from God. We'll get there eventually. But fear is an unpleasant emotion that is caused by a belief. It's a pattern of thinking. It's a way of thinking about the world and ourselves. So, so because of this belief, we say things like, I believe I am not good enough, so I will work myself to death. Men, this is a lot of us. And at root of a workaholism is the belief that I am not good enough. I believe, this is huge, this is huge. This is a struggle for Christians the world over, friends, especially in our world today, here in this land. I believe I will not have enough, so I will not be generous And now we're preaching. I believe I will not have enough. So I will hold at arm's length the growth and godliness that he calls me to. Here's, here are a couple others. These are huge for us. This is everybody for these next two right here. I believe you will not like me. So I will always say yes. I believe he will not like me, so I will always say yes. I believe you will hurt me, so I will always say no. Now, now can you see? Can you see how these patterns of thinking keep us from growth and godliness? From from moving into the next step of faith God has for us, from continuing to go into the place where He's called us that gives us joy. 
Those are the kinds of beliefs we hold that hold us captive to fear. Keep us from moving forward. And we're human. We still struggle with sin. And we sound exactly like the people of God in the Old Testament. We sound exactly like the people of God in the Old Testament. We're going to look at Numbers 11 and 12. You don't have to look it up here, but we're going to tell you a little bit about it uh, because, because it sounds a lot like us in ways that hinder us from becoming who God made us to be and hinder us from mission. We see in Numbers 11 and 12 the true beliefs of the Old Testament people of God coming to the fore, coming to uh, be displayed in what they say. Their true beliefs about God's provision or their thought of his lack of provision. So let's go ahead and set the scene here, Numbers 11 and 12. Moses is still alive. Moses is leading the people of God. They're at this place. The first ten chapters of Numbers are preparation to go into the promised land. Moses is leading them. And they're just, they're just on the cusp of going into the promised land. They're just on the edge of that. For the first ten chapters of Numbers, they're preparing to go into the promised land. Notice, by the way, I said the promised land. Past tense. In other words, where they are right now, God had promised for a long time. This isn't new for them. God had provided for them before this moment as the Old Testament people of God. He had provided for them time and time and time again before this. God had brought them many, many, many years ago out of oppression and slavery into freedom. God had given them victory over their enemies time and time again. When they were in the wilderness and had no food, God said, here's manna, here's food, I got your back. I told you I would do this. This was something God had promised a long, long time ago. And he had cared for them along the way. He had provided for them along the way. And it wasn't enough for them. And so they started complaining and griping. Look at Numbers 11, 4 through 6 here. You can follow along on the screen here. Numbers 11, 4 through 6. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again. Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The fish cost nothing? Really? We remember the fish in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Yeah, because the promised land, the the land of milk and honey, doesn't have anything for you. But now our strength is dried up. We will not have enough. And there is nothing at all. There is nothing at all for us but this manna to look at. Not only are they sitting here going, God, you're not going to provide. They're going, you stuck me here. Tell me fear doesn't put us in that place. You stuck me here, God. I don't don't, don't trust Moving forward. Moses joins in. (laughs) He joins into this chorus of complainers. He starts into in Numbers 11. He says this, Numbers 11, 11 to 5, uh, 11 to 15, sorry. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? He's talking about himself here. And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? As if God hadn't helped him before. (laughs) 
Did I conceive all this people? This was your idea, God. Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give to your fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me and they say, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. Well, that's true. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. Three ways they got to fear. We went absurdly over time last time, so let's just say these quickly. Three ways they got to fear. Embrace the negative, enlarge the enemy, engage the fear. That's what happened here. They embraced the negative. All they saw before them in that moment, key, in that moment was the circumstances of that moment. And they embraced it as if that was the whole picture. That's a pattern of thinking. That's a lie about the state of reality as it is even now where we define everything by the negative. whole bunch of us are there. whole bunch of us. That's next week. That'll be fun. Number two, enlarge the enemy. Enlarge the enemy. They had just come from the world power, the Egyptians, in their recent history. The enemy for them was somebody they named as these huge giants in the promised land. We can't possibly go there. And engage the fear. The pattern of thinking became something that wasn't just a, a temporary feeling. It wasn't just an emotion for a moment. It was something that they gave themselves to. They embraced the negative. They enlarged the enemy and they engaged that fear and they kept feeding on it. Which is to say, that is the opposite of Christ's captive thinking. Instead of your head in the game, Christ's captive thinking, all you see is this. All you see is your circumstances, the horizontal, the here and now. That's how you engage it, and it becomes a pattern of thinking that keeps you stuck. Now, here's what's, here's what's so awesome about the truth of becoming a believer in Christ. This is what is amazing. I, there, there's this thing that I believe about Scripture, which is, on the one hand, there are lots of things that we take more literally than we should or need to. This is one of those examples where we do not take as literally what we should. God says in Scripture, unqualified, unqualified, you have nothing to fear. That's a radical thing to say. You have nothing to fear. We'll revisit that a little bit later. A lot of great stuff to say about that here soon. But the truth of following God that applies today is that he is a resurrected God who demonstrated power over death and sin. Not pretend. Actually. Who demonstrated power over death and sin. And he has promised us the same thing for our lives today and in eternity. And it's a promised land for us. Promised, past tense. The future for us of eternity with God is as good as done today. Because the same God who demonstrated power over death and sin in the cross can make it happen forever in our lives today. And he will take us there. We can, as a result of that truth, 
as a result of that theological truth that we live out of the resurrection power, we can lean into, instead of stay away from, we can lean into God's provision and his power for us. Look at 2 Timothy 1 here. We're going to start at 2 Timothy 1, verse 1. We'll eventually get there to verse 7 and say a few things about it especially. But this is one of those places in Scripture where there is an unqualified, radical statement like, no reason for fear. It says this, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Notice how this is a promise of something. He's talking out of his own provision of God, his own experience of the provision of God. And he's saying, I'm speaking to you, Timothy, young Timothy, from the power and the authority that comes from God himself, the God who promises life because of his son, Jesus Christ. So give in to that faith and courage, Paul is saying. Paul is writing Timothy because he's timid. He's timid. And this young guy, Timothy, is being given this huge task of shepherding a flock where there are uh, invaders, there are people trying to get into the flock, there are uh, wolves, there are people invading with false teaching, which, by the way, if you have eyes to see, is every flock. So he's writing to Timothy because Timothy is timid and he is full of fear. There are bunches of places where we talk about that in the, the Fan the Flame series in Second Timothy we recently went through. But Paul, who has been on this walk with God for a long, long time, time he knows God's provision and his faithfulness in fact this is Paul's last letter he's writing from a prison in Rome he's writing to say let me encourage you young Timothy let me encourage you verse 2 he says to Timothy my beloved child grace mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience. I serve him with a clear conscience. It's a good thing to be able to say. As I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, I'm with you on this journey. I remember you constantly. You're in my prayers. Verse 4, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Your success is my success. Your faith in God's provision for your ministry is my joy, Timothy. Verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Which, which is to say, this faith which is in you, Timothy, is there to keep you strong for where God's going to take you. And this is why he says this, verse 6, for this reason, for the reason of the way that God has provided for you in life, for the reason that you have faith in him, not just as an intellectual exercise one time when you came down, when you prayed the prayer, when you got baptized and said, I believe intellectually in the truth that Jesus is God's son and he died on the cross for me, but that that faith is ongoing moment to moment, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year by year to provide for me all the way. And faith, faith is the wrench in the works of that faith for us sometimes. Did I say faith is the wrench in the works? Fear is what I meant to say. (laughs) Fear is the wrench in the works of that movement of faith. So he says this, verse 6. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Then he says this. For God gave us a spirit, 
not of fear. This is not, an un, this is not a, a, a qualified statement. He's saying, but these kinds of fears. He's saying, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Look at verse 7 there, especially here. We're going to focus on this. Verse 7. God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Three things that we do not have to fear. Number one, we do not have to fear circumstances. We do not have to fear circumstances because we have, he says here, power. We have power. The word for power there is uh, dunamis. It's the word that we use for dynamic, which is to say that the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is available to us right now for an ongoing relationship with God that will sustain us and provide for us and get us to heaven. We do not have to fear relationships because we have love. Let's be honest, a lot of us, most of us, the, the vast majority of us have real fears about relationships that keep us from leaning into places where God wants us to grow. But we don't need to fear that because we have love, which is to say we have grace and mercy from God. So, so we live out of a love that comes from the grace and mercy of God, not out of a love that I manufacture for myself. Listen, many of us are existing in our relationships based on a love that we will ourselves to, there is a very definite limit to your ability to love. You don't just will yourself to love. You love out of the truth of a God who gave you infinite mercy and grace. So we love because love comes from that. Love comes from God. Love comes from the truth of the cross that I love and I say, that kind of grace, that kind of mercy that God showed me, I will show to others. So we don't have to fear relationships because we have love, real love. Not pretend, will yourself to it, love. We also don't have to fear internal battles. We don't have to fear internal battles because we have the third thing there, self-control. We talked last week about depression, which is very much a, an internal battle. We don't have to fear internal battles because we have self-control. Another way to, to translate that word, it's kind of a power-packed word, uh, is right mind. We have the right mind. We don't have to give in to the lies about how we think the world operates. Because you see, when we, when we live out of fear, we're living out of the assumptions that we see in the world around us as if that is reality. But it's not. And I know that for me, personally, when I, when I live out of a place of fear, my, my biggest fears are rejection and failure and loneliness. That's what I wrote on the back of my, uh, my card here. My three greatest fears are rejection and failure and loneliness. I also wrote on here, which means I am a workaholic type A, people-pleasing freakazoid. That's a place I live out of a lot. And I know that when I live out of a place of fear, I worry more about what man says than what God says. So it's no surprise that it becomes a pattern of thinking. And when I live from that place of fear, let's be honest, I start trying to please you instead of God, and there's no pleasing you.
I don't, I don't just mean it's one way. I mean, I can't please you. You can't please me. That's a lie that you can. God didn't make it that way. He made it so that our relationships with one another would have these kinds of limits that we don't keep from, but that we name and surpass because of the grace of God. When we are captive to the fear of people around us, there is no pleasing each other enough. And the minute that we start thinking that we have to earn affirmation, we start living out of fear. That's the minute we start living out of fear. Because the end game for trying to get affirmation from one another that we can only get from God, and that's how he set it up, means that we are constantly on eggshells. We've never done enough. And that becomes a pattern of fear out of which we operate. And you know why that doesn't work? It's because you haven't died for my sins. And let's be honest about something else. Some of you, when I say this, are going to think at first I'm being heartless. But I want you to hear this, and I mean it. I, I mean this question. What is the worst that could happen? Let that sink in. Think about it. What is the worst that could happen? You'll not have enough for your retirement? Nope, not the worst. Not the worst. You'll experience physical pain, perhaps? Nope, not the worst. Not even close. You'll be emotionally hurt or rejected or lonely? Not even close to the worst. Uh, some of you may be sitting here thinking as I'm saying this thing, uh, yeah, those are the worst. <laughs> That's exactly why I'm justified in my fear. Plus, plus, Scott, you don't know what I've been through. You don't know what I've experienced. You don't know how much I've lost. You don't have any idea why I'm fearful. And I should be. And I'm going to be and you can't stop me. The worst that could happen is not that you will not have enough, that you will not be good enough, that you will not have provision, that you do not know the future. Let me go, let me go to the extreme, because I mean this question, what is the worst that can happen? The worst that could happen is not that you will be physically hurt. That's a real pain. I'm not saying it's not. The worst that could happen is not that you will lose your kids. The worst that could happen is not that you will go out onto your car and your entire car, all five of you, sideswiped and dead in a moment. Real pain. Absolutely not the worst. And here's the truth of the matter. This is, why, this is why there are things in Scripture we need to believe more literally than we do. The worst that could happen is that you could have eternity apart from God. Nothing else remotely comes close. 
which is to say the power of Jesus and the Holy Spirit to raise him from the dead is not pretend. It is the faith and provision for your future. It is why you can lean into generosity that feels like a stretch beyond anything you possibly think could be good for you. Fear fear is crippling your growth. It's crippling you. Because when Jesus dies on the cross, and in that moment... He takes on the sin of, of the whole world. And he says, my grace is sufficient for you. He, he, he actually means it. Friends, the opposite of fear for the Christian, the opposite of fear for the Christian is not Boldness, it's not courage, it's not willpower, it's not stick it's not self-discipline. The opposite of fear for the Christian is faith and trust in God's provision. And when we learn that, when we lean into that, when that is the source of where we live, then come what may, circumstances, hurt, pain, they're real. You will feel it. We live in a fallen world where things hurt. Where not having enough has a real effect. But even then, in that suffering and pain and loss, at that moment when you see that and you experience that and you look back on that and you live out of that pain from the past and you're fearful for the future, you, you think to yourself, the Son of God was rejected. He suffered for me. So this is not the worst that could happen. And the best that could happen is a reality for my life. That's trust. It's trust in the Father's provision It's trust in Christ's perfect, sinless life sacrificed for you. It's trust in the Holy Spirit to take you where you need to go instead of where your fear wants you not to go. God has taken care, literally taken care of our every need in a way which means we will have forever relationship with Him with a provision that is infinitely beyond our best thoughts of what it could be today. And if we don't embrace that narrative, if we, don't, if we don't live out of that truth, then we should be afraid. Because death is the result. Because the enemy would not have been defeated. <laughs> but that's not the actual world we live in. The actual world we live in is a world where God has put periods where we put question marks. I wish I'd said this first. Write it down because it totally rocks. I didn't. Worry or fear is putting question marks where God puts periods. It's putting question marks where God has put a period. 
So a believer in Christ can march through life with the confidence that doesn't have to be willed by yourself. It's just a, tr- it's just a truth about the way God made the world and how he provides for us in Christ. Which is to say, Romans 8, 31 and following, there is nothing, there is nothing that can separate us, that can keep us from his provision if we have faith and trust in him. Romans 8, 31, this is a great passage. That's why we're going to end with your own version of the Romans 8 prayer. Romans 8, 31 and following. We're going to say something about verse 31 and then we're just going to read the rest. Let this scripture wash over you here in just a second. Romans 8, 31. He starts off with this question. What then shall we say to these things? Paul writing, he's asking this question because he has just written about all these amazing things that are the result of salvation in Christ. He's saying Christ died for us. The Holy Spirit has made us new. We have all of this provision for God in our past. And then he says, so what shall we say about those things? He says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, in other words, you didn't die. I didn't die. Christ is the one who died, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Listen to this list. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Seven things, all, all things. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In other words, bring it on. Verse 37. No, he says, no, in all of these things that he mentioned, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, I am without fear, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come that I have no idea about, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. No relationship, no hurt, no pain, no suffering, no rejection, no loneliness will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I told you two things earlier. Number one, that I'd finish the story about the Boxer Rebellion. Number two, that we'd use the other side of the three-by-five card. So these militant Chinese uh, nationalists called the boxers had the whole compound surrounded one way out. hundred children mostly, some, stu- some teachers in there uh, were told one way out, trample the cross, go free, bow to it and die. The first seven students walk out and they, they trample on the cross. And they are let go. They are freed. The eighth student is this young girl uh, who knelt in front of the cross, prayed for strength. She got up slowly and, and carefully moved around the cross, knowing full well what came next, and goes out to face the firing squad. Every single one, all of her, stood up in courage for the same thing. Got their heads chopped off. 
because they love Jesus. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ if you will trust in Him for His provision. I want to uh, invite you this week to maybe as a part of the service, maybe later today, to take this home and write your own Romans 8 prayer. We believers have got to claim the truth of Romans 8 and stand on it. Strong and bold. Not because you're disciplined. Not because you have the resources. But because you trust in Jesus Christ alone. A Romans 8 prayer of faith for God's provision. Write that for you. Keep it in your pocket. Put it on your dashboard. Put it on your mirror in the morning. Pray this prayer to yourself. And live out of that truth. Let's pray, friends.